Talk Radio 191 FM podcast. Mr. Speaker. Alright, that is that time. It's 8.30 on a Monday morning. That's uh, So I'm joined, sorry, uh, um, by John and Vivian. Morena to you both. Good morning. Kia ora koutou and yeah. happy Ramadan. Happy Ramadan. The month of Ramadan. That's right. That's right. So we're going to. Most Muslims do, some don't. So Brunei's <laughs> going to have a one month monitorium on um, stoning to death. Are they? Oh, yep, yep. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, oh, this morning. Facing the pressure. Have you not seen all the headlines that are uh, typical um, clickbait Westerner headlines that say that it's not happening anymore? It just says, um, um, yeah, they're not very good with headlines. Brunei says it won't enforce death penalty for gay sex after backlash. That's what some people, that's headline right there, mm. but that doesn't, that's not true. Mm. They're, they're just, just putting it on hold. They're just putting it on hold again <laughs> uh, until, uh, and I will quote, um, him here, the the Sultan. However, we believe that once um, these have been clear, which questions and mis um, preconceptions, mm. once these are clear, the merit of the law will be evident. Well, it's very difficult for the Sultan not mm. to implement it because he said that Brunei must base its law on the Quran and the Hadith, and it's very clear in the Quran and Hadith that uh, people proven to engaged in sodomy mm. <laughs> uh, should be stoned to death. If, if there's enough witnesses and there's there's uh, no leniency. Does it not say that. the same thing in the Bible? Yes, yeah, certainly in the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> um, Paul can be interpreted in the New Testament as saying that gays should be killed. So, yes. Mm, mm. It's nothing unique no, to Islam. No, 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 no. But, then, but when you have a, I guess when you have a regime saying that's going to base all its laws on the Quran, then there's very little room to then move. That's true. That's true. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about uh, things close to that, I guess, um, soon. Yep. Um, but we're going to start off with welfare reform. The government has announced, um, well, ha- had already announced that it would be reforming the welfare system. Um, but it looks like at this point in time, it's just a couple of tweaks uh, rather than um, giving it a complete overhaul. John, what has been announced? Well, first of all, the government uh, set up a welfare expert advisory group, so one of its many groups (laughs) uh, that that it's uh, put in place to look at uh, how to bring about a transformative regime. And uh, as with the tax working group, it looks like the government won't be implementing most of the recommendations. So Mm. there were 42 recommendations. The government has said that um, this term uh, it will only be implementing three of them. Uh, so those three recommendations are that uh, penalties on, on women who don't declare the father of the child will be removed. Those penalties yeah. will be removed. The threshold in terms of how much um, someone on a benefit can earn before they start having their benefit sliced into, mm-hmm. that's been uh, pushed up. And there will also be more funding of, um, of wins itself with more staff. Um, so that are the three recommendations, but the the rest of them, the government said, well, maybe in the future we yeah. might implement some of them, but 
Yes, don't hold your breath. No, I wouldn't hold my breath. No. Um, yeah, we're not driving over a very long bridge. That's the only time you should hold your breath. It's a fun game. Yeah, no, it's a good game. <laughs> yeah, it's made <laughs> over a car a couple of times. Yeah, have you really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, you're impressed. That's amazing. That was a, that was a highlight. I tried to do it last time I went up to Christchurch, and uh, there's no way. Uh, um, yeah. j- just quickly, um, I hope that out of the 263 new frontline staff, at least half of them are phone staff. Um, yes. <laughs> Is that a lot, a lot more pleasant? Not that I don't enjoy listening to like Bekrunga it's a good soundtrack they've got going on there but you can be on hold for quite some time with any of the government agencies Absolutely. Say, mm. uh, working income um, but yeah like you, um, isn't it weird that once again another expert advisory board you know they came out and we're going to have all these boards and they were criticised for spending all this money and having all these people do all these things you know when you can just come up with it yourself but they're like no 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 we need to have the experts the experts know what they're talking about the experts you know the same with the tax working group Um, but then as soon as just like the tax working group as soon as the things come out they're like well well, well actually hold on here um, we want to get back in oh. uh, we're going to listen to um, the naysayers who normally have the largest voices instead of the experts that's crazy Vivian yeah it seems like a total waste of money once again and the government's just come out um, this group's given recommendations the government came into government with no real policy ideas so they outsourced their, all their policy development to these groups now the groups are coming back saying things that they don't necessarily want to hear so they've decided, oh, well, um, no, we're listening to the will of the people and we're not going to do that, which is a line that I think I'm just about at my wit's end mm. of getting hearing over and over again. Um, and you think that if they're going to keep saying, oh, no, we're going to listen to the experts, they can't pick and choose when they're going to listen to the experts in a way. They can't go, oh, look, the experts said this, that's why we're going to justify doing it, and then the next day go, oh, couldn't possibly do that, even yeah. though the experts have recommended it. So I think it's just a, a colossal um, waste of money. But... That's just my point of view on the whole the whole issue. And surely it makes them look pretty weak, John. Uh, yeah, possibly. I, I guess they're giving signals to uh, more conservative aspects of the electorate. So when I use the term conservative here, I'm talking about being economically conservative, fiscally conservative, mm. uh, to business interests, etc., that, that don't want a, a government that's, uh, that's spending beyond what is seen as orthodox levels these days in terms of GDP. So I think with the government's budgetary responsibility rules, I think it's um, they limit themselves to 20% of GDP while paying off... Um, Debt at a at a reasonably rapid rate to those sectors of the community, if you like, or electorate, um, uh, the government will seem strong in that it's not it's not giving in to so-called left-wing pressure, union pressure, etc., or the pressure of the Green Party, which at the moment is clearly to the left of Labour, although not always. Um, but yes, to the traditional supporters of Labour, uh, people who are more left-leaning economically want more spending by the government and a greater proportion of GDP spent by the government, then this will be highly disappointing for them. Um, I remember um, uh, um, when the government when it was announced that Labour was going into coalition with New Zealand first, talking to people in the union movement, there was apparently just a, a, a huge sense of excitement uh, that we were going to actually have a transformative left-wing government. To me, all the signs were that we weren't, because they had these very strict budgetary responsibility rules, which on the face of it, put them to the right of the key government, which mm. was prepared to borrow and spend during a, um, a recession, for example. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I think left-wing supporters of Labour and of the government uh, will be coming more and more to the conclusion that uh, 
transformation, it's not going to happen. Do they think, um, Vivian, that their base is always going to be their base? I think they're getting quite complacent. Where else are they? Where where else are they going to go? Yeah, they're not going to all of a sudden switch and vote for for national. No, because they, you know, um, so so. What what game are they playing with their, with their own people? I mean, so they're trying to appease, um, will bring more of the centre over, so they have a, a bigger piece of the the voting pie. But eventually, people are going to get disillusioned, and they're going to go. Well, they're going to try something else. I mean, maybe even yeah. there'll be a split within the party. Almost. Well, you see that the divisions they've already got within their own caucus group currently. It seems pretty ridiculous. I mean, you've got people who've been in parliament for many years who weren't rewarded with, say, a cabinet position, and then. Someone like Willie Jackson just rocks on it and he's the Minister of Unemployment. Um, and you uh, just think. He won them the, the Maldi seat, so. That's what they reckon, yeah. Um, I'd say he, he almost did a bit more damage to them in the Maori seats, but um, it's an interesting conundrum because I'd say that you'd, all the things that Labour have said they're going to do, you would have predicted before the election Labour would have, you know, let um, single mothers not name the, child, uh, name the father of the child. You mm. expected them to say, oh, it's okay, um, you can earn a sort of higher amount before we start sort of carving away your benefit. These are things that Labour were going to do anyway. So mm-hmm. I think the Labour base will go, oh yeah, yeah, that's great, you're going to do those things, but why did we need a, a working group or a commission to tell us that that's what we were going to do? Mm. you got these sort of, these voters who, well, they're quite happy because they got what they wanted, but they'll be starting to think, well, that's still not far enough. We've got this group that's recommended, you know, 42 things. Yeah. So if they had just not gone with the group and just come out with these things then I think they would have been in a much stronger position. Yeah, they're very light, the recommendations that they're going with, but they are very important, especially the solo parent one. I think that that's quite important because sometimes you just, well, for, for, for many reasons, you can't. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's a tough one. And, and, you know, that was kind of implemented in the fact that, you know, um, to try to get people to pay child support, that was the whole purpose of yeah, that. Yeah, so that's the argument, that you need that penalty put in place so it, it, it forces the mother to reveal who the biological father is so that biological father has to contribute uh, to to the cost of bringing up that child through maintenance and if you don't have that penalty in place then you'll have lots of mothers for various reasons who won't say what the father is so that that's the rationale behind that penalty yeah. uh, however the argument against it one of the strongest arguments is that well you're penalising the child yeah yeah, exactly. You're penalising the yeah, child. You're making the, the the mother, the solo mother, poorer mm. and have less to spend uh, on the, the, the family as a whole. Yeah, and you're punishing a lot of uh, women as, as well out there that um, for who knows what reason, their own personal reasons, they can't. And it can mm. be absolutely tragic. Mm. And for those reasons, you, you, know, you can't put everybody's eggs in the one basket. And I imagine there are, there are exceptions to having to name the father. I mean, I, I, there I'm, are, I'm pretty sure. But I guess yeah. you have to prove, say, that um, yeah. that you don't know who the father is, for yeah. example, or that the, the father is um, in the involvement, or you don't want the father to know that the, um, the, <laughs> the biological parent because they might be violent or they might yeah. be abusive. But yeah. I guess that then the mother is forced to prove and or that's to at least show some evidence. Yes, yeah, some evidence of that. And oh, just like the same. classic ACC, if you want to be getting um, you know, money for counselling because you've been sexually assaulted, you have to prove that you're mentally unstable. Mm. That's just another one of those kinds of yeah. ridiculous rules. So, yes.
I interrupted. Go. Cool. That's all right. <laughs> and I think that I think uh, one of the biggest criticisms of this uh, welfare reform package is that it's not addressing what the government said is one of New Zealand's main concerns, and that's poverty, uh, mm. especially child poverty. Although you can argue that uh, when politicians go on about child po- poverty, it's all a bit disingenuous because um, children are only poor when their parents are poor. You need to focus on the whole family and the whole of society. But anyway, the, this this. I mean, the the Welfare Expert Advisory Group advised um, putting up benefits by 47%, and that might seem like a huge amount, but what what we've got to remember that under the um, Bolger-led, Jim Bolger-led National Government in the early 90s, there were significant cutbacks Mm. uh, to benefits um, when Jenny Shipley was Minister of Social Welfare, who um, has now faced criminal prosecution, but anyway, (laughs) uh, put that aside, uh, and or civil prosecution, but um, uh, the fact is that those, the only government since then to put up benefits in real terms, so uh, benefits go off adjusted for inflation, but in real terms with the John Key government. Yeah, that's right. The, the Helen Clark Liberal left-wing government never put up benefits. Uh, this government is certainly looking like it won't put up benefits, and, and that would make a real difference to uh, poverty and inequality if, if um, benefits were significantly raised. But you have to ask how serious is when Jacinda Ardern said she got into politics because she the main reason was because she wants to fight child poverty, and she's, not, and she's not prepared to put up benefits, then you've got to question her sincerity. Yeah, I mean, she's flying all over the world. I mean, she's going to Paris to do this announcement. Uh, they're calling it the Christchurch Call or something like that. Why aren't they doing it in Christchurch if it's going to be called that? Why do you have to do it in Paris with a French mm. leader who tear gasses his own citizens out of mm. a protest and arrests people for up to two years without actually convicting them? And you're thinking, oh yeah, and you go into politics to stop child poverty, but you're just wasting all this, all this money and all this time, and you're just losing up the limelight for these, I'd say, less important things or things that could be done on a much cheaper way, just to virtue signal. Yeah. Now, if I was to channel the spirit of Jacinda Ardern through me, what her response would be <laughs> that, okay, no, we haven't raised benefits, but we've looked at other mechanisms for dealing with poverty, and the yeah, main mechanism has been <laughs> has been working for families tax credits, yeah, which apply yeah. for both beneficiaries and people working. Although, um, when the when the whole um, working for families tax credit system was set up by the Clark government. It was pointed out by um, a number of NGOs and, um, and, and groups and pundits that it was discriminatory towards beneficiaries, that the that that it was um, weighted towards raising the income levels of people who are already working, the working poor and the so-called middle class. So it was mm. discriminatory. It does, beneficiaries get some some um, uh, money out of the Working for Families tax credits, but it, it's definitely weighted towards people who are actually working. And it certainly hasn't... Uh, what Working for Families did is it raised people more in the middle. It pulled them upwards, so it did lessen um, inequality in those terms, but the people right at the bottom, beneficiaries and people on incredibly low wages, uh, it, it, it didn't really affect them to... Um, well, it gave them some uh, increase in income, but uh, not enough to pull them out of poverty. Yeah, yeah. Um, is you know, it, it's it's like a bandaid on a gaping wound. But do we have you know? We want to talk a little bit about just quickly uh, about dependency. You know, do we have a culture of dependency in Aotearoa, New Zealand, on the benefit? Do we have? Uh, is our benefit system too liberal? Does does it need to change? 
um, or do we do we constantly let bad eggs um, you know the, the bad egg rotten smell blanket everybody you know are, are we you know are there too many people crying out that oh they're just about to lazy scumbags because a certain percentage are but then everybody else it's also on the benefit that are struggling may have just lost a job you know we look at Cavalry shutting down in Dunedin we look at all these different there's many ways why people have to go on the benefit and it is a bridge gap for the vast majority of people so you know do we have an issue of, of benefit beating uh, in this country and do we kind of make up a culture of dependency and is it or is it real I think there is a culture of dependency currently in New Zealand um, but our system and the way it is currently working I think works pretty well I mean, we haven't got um, you know mass unemployment just for the sake of unemployment in a way. We have got a, a massive issue with trying to get New Zealanders to, say, move out of Auckland or move to regions where there are massive labour shortages. Um, but I don't think New Zealand has an estate where we have got that sort of like people would rather go, I'll just sit at home and not work and uh, earn the benefit. I think we actually have got a, a relatively good culture. I do believe in New Zealanders as, as good people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the current system serves us well. I yep. just don't understand why, yeah don't need to be raised any more than they currently are I think it's a pretty good it should be something that you are you shouldn't when you're on the benefit you shouldn't be comfortably living on the benefit it should be hard to live on the benefit to encourage you to do something else because you don't want to be on there forever but if you are on there for a legitimate reason that you're going to be on there long term then there are currently decent mechanisms to give you a good standard of living but what if you are that person that you know, got laid off at Cabris, and you, you know, you, you, the company's closed down. There's a lot of people there. There's not that many, jo- you know, if there wasn't enough open jobs um, in in the market at that time, and you've gone from having a pretty decent wage to getting 182 dollars a week. Um, it's an interesting question, um, but I'd argue that there are plenty of jobs in Dunedin, and there are plenty of jobs that have around the Dunedin area and it's people need to realise mm. that just because you've got one skill doesn't mean that's the only skill you're ever going to use in your life that's true and we've got a fantastic tertiary education system and obviously um, to be able to switch trades or to switch jobs and to learn something wholly new at an older age is so much easier than it used to and I just don't like the idea that oh you've you've worked in a chocolate factory your entire life and that's all you're ever going to do it's like no god let these people go do something else if they want to and just because their job's been shut down there one door closes, another door definitely open. But the trend in Western countries has been that with deindustrialisation, the shift of industry from the so-called first world to the, the third world, where there's cheaper labour, that, that um, yes, there, there's not massive unemployment at the moment in the West, but people have ended up doing jobs that, that um, have lower incomes. Mm. That they're, um, um, in, in real terms, the majority of people's um, income has actually decreased if, if you take into account inflation, and that's a problem. With like people at Cadbury's were pretty um, reasonably well pl- paid, relatively well paid. Yes, there's other jobs out there, say in the service industry and other areas, but generally they would be more lowly paid than mm. is the case with Cadbury's, and, and that's what you've seen in America as well. Yes, under Donald Trump, you've got record low unemployment record low unemployment uh, but the jobs aren't the type of jobs you saw when um, when America was an industrial stronghold and, and you had strong unions and, and, and basically strong unions compa- um, combined with uh, strong industry led to millions of people being pulled out of poverty in America and having a so called middle life lo- um, lifestyle where they could have mm. a nice house and their kids potentially to private schools if they wanted, uh, have a car or two or three, and, and that reality doesn't exist anymore. 
Yeah, what about, you know, those people, I want to bring Cadbury's again, or, or Hillside Engineering, where I used to work, which were very high-paying jobs. Mm. Um, what are the, those people, they can, easy, they can go retrain, that costs several thousands of dollars. Mm. Plus, there's, you know, what if you were the sole income earner for a family of three or four? You know, and, and then you've got to go back to university and you're getting a, you know, you're, you're getting uh, the university allowance. Uh, plus, you know, whatever money you'll get for for having kids. Um, well, what I think we can... One thing's definitely clear from this is that the national government, the last national government we had, produced a lot more good quality jobs than this current government is producing. Since this government's been in power, I think they've produced something like the stats are out there, like 66,000 jobs. And under national, there were like 10,000 new jobs getting created every single month while they were in power. Um, the difference being that this government's completely cut off immigration, so now we've got this sort of low-end jobs that are popping up and going, oh, you know, who wants to be a fruit picker over here? Well, no one. But if you fill that job up, then another job gets created and another job gets created. But this government's really just hamstrung these New Zealanders who are sort of this, like, the single-income earner for a household. They can't go out and get a decent-paying job again. The only job they've got is the job that this government's refusing to fill by declaring there's clearly a labour shortage. Mm. Um, it's an interesting conundrum, though, and I can understand why um, when you lose your job... You go, oh, well, how come I haven't got the right to get the exact same income I got? And some welfare systems it. do that. They they, they will pay you like 80, 90% of your previous income if you're made redundant or become unemployed due to no fault of your own. So there are other models certain, of welfare other yeah. than ours which just end up uh, giving you the bare minimum to, to survive. And you, you can more than survive on a benefit, um, especially, but uh, it's with the exception of certain areas such as Auckland where rent prices are so high and, and the cost of living is so high that you would really struggle even uh, an average working income is pretty hard to live on in Auckland mm. um, we better move on um, we're no closer to answering any questions <laughs> than that. Um, uh, but uh, we, we, Israel Folau because we've only got a few minutes mm. Israel, just quickly Israel Folau has rejected a $1 million payout uh, from the Australian Rugby uh, Union uh, they want him gone sponsors want him gone teammates want him gone uh, you know everybody kind of wants him gone um, and I think the confusion here once again it, it's been made into this big free speech issue um, when really it's a contract issue really isn't it yeah yeah it's pretty basic he signed a contract saying he wasn't going to be a dick and he went out there and was a complete twat yeah. on social media again and I think that people go, oh, you know, like, it's not in his workplace. He's doing it in his private life. And it's like, uh, his workplace is his private life. He's yeah. a rugby player. Oh, so everything he does, it's just like, everything you do, people watching you constantly. You can't go on there and go, oh, look, like, you know, if you actually look at his Instagram, it's not an isolated post. No. Every second post is saying, if you're a drunk, you're going to go to hell, all this. And then this one was just a, another poorly screenshotted Google search image of all gays go to hell or something like that or that what's that homosexuals um, drug kids it was drug kids, a whole yeah. list of things and you're thinking if you look at his look at it in context it's not unusual for him to post something that stupid um, yeah. and uh, the fact that it's finally just I think it's the straw that's broken the camel's back and like he's got to go no one's can say, no one's saying that you can't have these opinions and no one's yeah. saying that you, you don't have the freedom to have those opinions and no one's saying that other people can't post these things and all stuff like that I, you know, I have a contract that I have mm -hmm. signed here. Yeah, I'm on the radio. I uh, apparently have a public face, um, and if I went and, and, and wrote things like that on the internet, I could expect to be fired. That was the, that's the contract I mm -hmm. signed, and mm -hmm. I know that. But there is there is a political argument to be had over whether an employer, a boss, a corporate should have 
have any right to actually police uh, what their employee, what their worker does and, and outside of their work time. Um, and I guess I find it quite chilling that we have accepted the premise that an employer does have that right to police what you do and say outside of um, work time. And let's remember that um, Israel Folau has not done anything illegal no, uh, in no. terms of what he's uh, said about homosexuality and drunkards, etc. Um, so he hasn't broken any laws, but he, he's but the rugby union, Australian rugby, um, is saying that um, uh, his, are saying what his behaviour and what his expressed morals must be within the public space, and that is you can't. It is a free speech issue to me because you can't say someone has the right to hold to believe and they, but then say but they don't have the right to express that belief. Okay, well then that's, don't, get, that's don't, take, don't take the job. Don't take the job. If yeah. that's in your contract, you see the contract. You've got a choice to sign it or not. Mm. If you don't believe in that, don't take the job. But because of the, the power of capital in relation to to employees, to workers, the power of capital is all is always greater. So it, it gives it gives um, um, a few private Individuals and, and, and managers and owners of corporations huge control over people. If they if they have the right to put in a contract what you can say and do outside of your workplace, to me we wouldn't allow the state to do that. That would be seen as draconian and illiberal. Mm. Uh, yet we're um, arguing here that private corporations should be able to have that control over people's personal lives and, and to me that's that's very illiberal from both a right-wing or left-wing point of view I mean traditional right-wing liberals I, I think should argue that um, it, it, it's chilling that a private organisation could uh, place limits on people's behaviour and speech but mm. in reality it's just freedom of contract isn't it <laughs> so you should be able to sign any contract saying whatever you want. I mean, you can sell yourself soul to the devil. But you tomorrow. can't put. I mean, you can't put it. You can't put it. You can't put into a contract whatever you like. If, uh, if, but you if, can, if a com almost. Well, if a, if <laughs> a employer's like, con yeah. contract conflicts with the law, then it's now void. So, for, so I had a friend who worked for um, the Brethren, the Extreme Brethren, yeah. and he was in his contract. It said he wasn't allowed to have female flatmates. He wasn't. A brethren himself, but he was doing a, a, a trade certificate with the brethren. What was, even though he signed that, that was illegal because you can't say to your employee yeah, uh, who they can live with. So that that aspect of that contract was now on point. And quite possibly that's the case with Australian rugby. It might be shown when it goes to court that uh, Australian rugby does can't actually interfere in people's religious beliefs. Well, we'll find out. We're running out of time. Thank you very much, lads. See you again next week. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.